Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm your host. I'm only as hip as my guest, and uh, I'm, I'm excited for my guest today. My guest is, uh, is a songwriting. He's legendary. He is legendary, and he's got a, has an amazing career. And my guest is Desmond Child. How you doing? Hey, it's such a pleasure to to be on your show, Steve. I'm, I'm really happy to to, to get to get a chance to speak with you, and I I hear you're from New Jersey. Yeah, I, I grew up I grew up in New Jersey. Now now you grew up in Florida, I believe. You were born in Florida. In Florida, yes, um, in Miami Beach, Florida. Okay, so now, as a kid, I believe your mother was a songwriter. As a kid, when were you drawn to music? Did you grow up with music in the house? And I mean, what got you into this career? You've had a very long and successful career. How did it all start? My mother was a songwriter and a poet, and so ever since I can remember, she's been writing a song, and my, my crib was next to her piano. And so... Uh, you know, when I was just, you know, you know, old enough to stand up or, or even say words, I'd be making suggestions, you know, uh, to her song, and she'd just, like, swat me away. Uh, but I didn't know that people didn't write songs. I just thought that's what people do, because it was always around me. It's weird that you say and that. so, um, you know, I, I think that was an advantage. Plus, my great-grandfather was a known poet in Cuba, and, and my mother uh, was signed to Pure International uh, Music, and she was a BMI writer her entire life. So she wrote it, so you grew up around it, just like, you know, kids end up doing law. If they grew up and their dad's a lawyer, that's what they know, or their mom's a lawyer, that's what they know. When did you, you helped her out, but when did you sit there and make a conscious effort to say, I want to start writing, or, and I know you've recorded, and when did you start singing? When did this all start? I mean, at like what age? I know you were around it, but what age did you sit there and say, hey, I want to sing or I, I want to write? I think I was about 14 years old, and I had gone with my cousin to uh, some rock festival. It was one of those overnight things. Um, and and uh, it was like a mini Woodstock in, at Gulfstream Park or something in Florida. And Janis Joplin was on stage for about two and a half hours, you know, drinking herself unconscious and singing. <laughs> and, but she captivated the audience. It was unbelievable and how thrilling it was. And I got goosebumps. And I said, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to make people feel things like that. And so I started writing my first song. Now, at 14... You know, we're in 15 and a teen. You know, we don't, we don't know a lot. I mean, we're smart. We're precocious, some of us. But what would, what would you write about at that age? I mean, and did you sit there and did you tell your mom you wanted to write? Or what was your whole, you know, technique to getting it started? Well, my cousin um, had a crush on a, on a girl in school. And he and I were very competitive. And her name was Laura Stern. And um, she came from a very intellectual Jewish family. They all got up at five in the morning and played their instruments and all this kind of stuff. So I went to uh, her birthday party and I didn't have enough money to buy a gift or anything. So I decided to write a song for her. And that was my first song. It was called Birthday Blues. Now, that must have been one of great feeling. How was it, how was it received? Did people like it? And, did, and they, I mean, what, what happened? Well, she liked it. <laughs> and so from there... And in fact, uh, I went to my 40th high school reunion, and she was there, and I, I sang it to her again. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, it was like, I mean, she's still, you know, she looks exactly like she did then in my mind. I mean, she's beautiful, and she's, she's gorgeous, and, um, you know, she's, uh, she was there with her mother, and, and, you know, and it was like, wow, you know, it's like time stopped. See, you know what's cool? You know what's cool about that story to me is that, you know, so many of us listen to music and it's a soundtrack to our lives. And for you, you've penned songs that are soundtrack to your lives. So it must be such a great feeling when you go back and you think, man, my first song, and it just, it brings you back. And that must be amazing for you as a writer. Yeah, I, you know, 
I've been so blessed. You know, I came from a very poor family because when my mother and all of our relatives uh, landed in Miami Beach uh, from from Cuba, uh, was, and um, it, w- it was it was hard times. I mean, we all just you know all the cousins, and there were a lot of us. We lived like a tribe, and there was. Was, there wasn't even room in the apartments we lived in for all of us to hang out. So we'd just be on the beach or walking down the streets. I mean, all that. And so I didn't have a B plan. So I knew I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what. And so I decided to become a songwriter because I actually felt confident enough to, to think I could make it. Well, you also. So when I changed my name to Desmond Child, Somehow Desmond Child was invincible. Desmond Child could do anything. And, um, you know, so that's, and that was a, one, one of those transformations. No. Um, so I, I did that, and I worked really hard because I wanted to make sure that my mom, you know, could be living in a beautiful apartment and have a nice car and beautiful clothes and all new furniture. And I once I got the song um, into in, into Kiss's album, uh, I was made for loving you. Then I never looked back. I was able to support my mom, you know, till the day she died, and she she lived like a queen, and, and it made me so happy. See, that's so awesome. Now, but you also before you wrote for the song for Queen, because I think that was in, what uh, before that you actually had you had your own band called Desmond Child and Rouge. How did how did you come up with that band and what made you start to be a band and how did you choose what kind of music you guys were going to play? Well, I went to um, NYU to study music and I had a girlfriend in Miami, Maria Vidal, and um, I had met another girl at high school and we, they were, we were all friends, Diana Graffelli, and I had met a girl while, while driving around earlier when I was 16 in a hippie commune, Miriam Valley, and we all got to New York to go to NYU, and um, we just moved into an apartment together and started our act. And it started with me being a solo artist, and then in the middle of my show, there would be a scuffle at the bar, and, I, and I'd say, who's making all that noise? And they say, they said, we are. And I said, well, do you think you could do better than me? And they said, yeah, well, then come here and sing then. And so then, you know, the audience didn't know what was going on, and that was how we started. Now, what was the music scene back like then in New York? I mean, it must have been very, uh, just it must have been crazy, because New York, that was New York was really raw at that time. Was Was it just a blast when you guys got to perform? Well, we would get all the club owners mad at us, because, You'd open the Village Voice and it would say, you know, on Monday, Desmond Chalmers Rouge at uh, Reno Sweeney. On, on Wednesday, Desmond Chalmers Rouge at, um, you know, Yellow Brick Road. Uh, Thursday, Desmond Chalmers Rouge at Tracks. And then Friday, we'd be, you know, somewhere else, Trudy Greens. And, uh, you know, they would, the uh, club owner said, you know, you're playing everywhere. There's no way you're going to be able to bring, you know, customers here to buy drinks because you'll have burned everybody out. Well, you know what? We were all in charge of bringing 10 people each from school, from work, from wherever. And we did it every gig. And so then, uh, you know, we, our, our following started getting bigger and bigger to the point there was uh, lines around the, the, the block at tracks and then yep, later the bottom line. So we were discovered uh, by a management company that also had a travel agency for bands, and Roy Erickson and Matthew Mark, and they had met Richard Landis at Capitol Records, and Richard signed us there, and then everything began. So at Tracks was when when Paul Stanley would come and and uh, hang out with us backstage because you know he was a star, but I think he had a little bit of a crush on. My girlfriend, Maria Vidal, um, and, um, you know, it was kind of a crazy time because it was around that time also that I realized that I was kind of more gay than I was straight. So it kind of uh, was hard to continue with the band, you know, after we did a, 
you know, we did two albums, national touring, we went on Saturday Night Live, and then kind of my life exploded, and I, and, um, kind of it all fell apart. But, but meeting Paul Stanley was, was pivotal in, in, in two significant ways. One is that we co-wrote that great song that actually changed the course of pop music because they brought rock guitars into disco beats and kind of, you know, a very mechanical disco beat too, which pointed the way to so much pop and urban music and everything that came afterwards. And um, then um, Paul Stanley was the one who gave John Bon Jovi my phone number. Uh, Kiss was uh, touring Europe and Bon Jovi was the opening act. And uh, they had loved a, a, a song that we had written called Heaven's on Fire. And they actually did a very similar song called In and Out of Love on Fahrenheit album. And so John calls me and I, I go and meet this band from New Jersey. And, and we went to Richie's house. He still lived with his parents. And his room was just off the kitchen. And, you know, I walk in and pass his room. And there's a big poster of Kiss and a big poster of Farrah Fawcett in the red <laughs> bathing suit. And um, there's John Bon Jovi you know, with this giant, you know, beautiful blonde hair on the, on the phone, on the wall phone, on the avocado wall phone. <laughs> and um, so Richie shows me downstairs uh, to a, sort of a little setup they had in the laundry room, on, and they had a little keyboard on a little rickety formica table that had been discarded down there, and amps were buzzing. And finally John came down, and we wrote, You Give Love a Bad Name which was a title that I, that I brought with me just in case things got slow. And John had a song on the previous record, Fahrenheit, called um, Shot Through the Heart. So he's not one to, to waste any great books. So he brought it in, Shot Through the Heart, and you're to blame, darling, you give love a bad name. It's, well, it's amazing, you know, because now when, you, when you wrote those first things for Kiss... Were you intimidated at all because it is Kiss and their persona is bigger than life? And I'm sure you, you know, that, you know, it, that's for anyone that must be intimidating. But when you sat down and write, like, what was your writing session with Paul when I was made for loving you? What made you guys decide to mix the disco with the harder rock? Because Kiss was a hard rock band. And it's something that, you know, people listen and it caught everybody. It's a wonderful song. But what, how did you guys come to that idea to make that? Well, the writing session was at SIR where they were rehearsing. And by the way, I wasn't intimidated because I really was never kind of like an avid Kiss fan. I really didn't know anything about them. I just liked him as a person. And, you know, I, it wasn't like now where you can go on YouTube and catch up on everything. Um, it was kind of like, yeah, that's, you know, kind of cool. And, I, you know, I grew, I grew up with my mother in, in show business. There were always stars in our house. There were always just regular people. And so I never, I'm never intimidated by, by, by people. The one and only person I was ever kind of a little bit scared to meet was Joni Mitchell. But, um, you know. Because I'm, you know, now in that case, like, I'm like a, you know, on my knees, you know, <laughs> fan. Uh, but um, really, it, it was very natural, and uh, we, uh, there was a big grand piano there, and I sat there and I started playing those, you know, kind of dark chords, and uh, tonight, I want to be there to you, you know, all that. And it, the song just came to being. And, um, you know, it you know, I'm, I've never co-written with, with Gene, coincidentally, but I've written over 18 songs or more with Paul Stanley through the years. So I was always Paul's guy. Now, when you met Bon Jovi and you said, when you, and living on the prayer, um, did you ever think that when, I mean, have you ever in your career thought when you co-write a song, of course you wanted it to be big, but did you ever think how big living on a prayer would be? Living on, and do you think also that help because it was not only a, a strong song, but then Bon Jovi's looks and the videos. I mean, what makes a song in your eyes have such an amazing lasting time? Because, you know, everybody loves that song. Well, you know, you never know where lightning's going to strike. You just have to show up and, you know, and, and th that's sort of how it was. And as it was happening, 
it was more of a surprise, you know, because I, you know, it was kind of like, I'd had a hit already with my own group, uh, I Love Is Insane. So, you know, things kind of seemed normal, but then all of a sudden, he really exploded, you know, because of all the things to say, his look, uh, the, the production was stellar. Uh, uh, it was uh, produced by Bruce Fairburn in uh, Vancouver. And it seemed like every song of mine that he ever touched, including the ones with uh, Aerosmith, uh, were number one songs. I mean, it's just, he was incredible. And he worked, Bob Rock was his engineer, and he had it down, you know. And he was a very disciplined producer who, you know, works, you know, 10 to 6, and then he would leave, and then Bob would oversee them doing their power chords and things like that into the night, and then they'd go off to their strip joints, and, you know, the next day would start. I, I was over there hanging out, you know, refining lyrics and stuff. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a very special time. And um, I, I, you know, I, I got very, very lucky. You know, it's like a lot of my friends, you know, are, were amazingly talented. You know, in some cases, more talented than me. But, you know, I, and they didn't ever have success. But I guess perseverance. And also maybe it's having a personality of, you know, that I learned surviving. Um, in the ghetto where I, where I grew up. You know, for a long time, I don't know if you saw that movie Moonlight, but that, that, those projects in Liberty City, right. we lived there for like, you know, 14 years. And that same exact, and, and the apartment that they showed in the movie was exactly like the one we lived in, exact. And so, you know, you, you learn to survive, you learn to adapt, you learn to have charm. And I guess, you know, by that point, you know, it was clear that I was gay, so I wasn't a threat to, you know, they could go off to their, you know, AA meetings or whatever and leave me in the kitchen talking to the wives, and they know that I wasn't going to, you know, lure them into bed, you know. <laughs> I would just talk about decorating and stuff. And so they always enjoyed having me around, and I, you know, I, I have charm, I'm funny, and sometimes it's a people thing. But... On the other hand, I think I do have skills, um, you know, real skills that were given to me by my mentor, Bob Fu, who is the producer and songwriter with Bob Gaudio of most of the Four Seasons hits. And uh, he also wrote for the, you know, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels and, and uh, Leslie Gore. And he wrote Lady Marmalade for LaBelle and, uh, you know, and got lived to see his that same song be number one again as a uh, part of Moulin Rouge. Uh, so um, he, I spent almost two years with him and he was very strict. He would, um, you know, we would meet every day at noon and for lunch at the same little French cafe. And then by one o'clock I'd be sitting at a piano, on a hard piano bench in his special studio apartment that he had rented only for songwriting. There was nothing on the walls. Not, you know, the carpet was, you know, beige. The walls were beige. Everything was beige. And there was nothing but uh, black coffee machine, not even sugar, not even, you know, fake milk to put in it, nothing. Just black coffee and some uh, writing pads, and he loved to sharpen pencils. And every day we'd sit there in front of those blank pages and, you know, we wrote 38 songs. But the process of writing with him was so specific that it, he really taught me the art of songwriting. See, that's fascinating. I mean, it's just so funny because it was, it was, you know, everyone thinks, you know, you know, songwriting and in music, it's so glamorous. But when you break it down, it was like you were going to a job that didn't have the best working conditions, but it made you grow because you knew you couldn't screw around. And that's probably instilled some of your work ethic besides, you know, how you grew up for the person you are now. Yeah, I'm pretty strict, you know. Uh, you know, when, 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 we, when I write with young artists, you know, it's it's a very strict setting, uh, you know. When I'm writing with pros and all that, it's much more relaxed. But guess what? They deliver faster because 
they know what they don't want. Right. And so, um, it's, it's, um, it, yes, the discipline was very important. But one of the things, I mean, he wouldn't work with anyone that wasn't a Scorpio. I don't know if you saw, um, I saw, let me interrupt real quick. I saw your October 28th. I'm October 30th. So. Oh, wow. Scorpio. Great. I'm not going to do any interviews with anyone who's not a Scorpio. Good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, and so he, he was like, we could drill down on one line for five hours until it was perfect. Just keep stripping it away, keep stripping it away until, you know, with the, you know, the kind of, the better it gets, the better it's got to get kind of uh, policy. No. And um, I, I just learned all of that from him, you know, clean rhymes, inner rhyming, alliteration, tension of the opposites, um, archetypes. I mean, just everything, um, you know, I learned from him. Now, earlier in your career, when, you know, Bon Jovi, when the song started taking off, when that happens, do all of a sudden, does everybody start pursuing you and chasing you? Because I noticed, you know, after Bon Jovi, you wrote with Aerosmith, you wrote with Cher. Do you get a name in the business and people go, hey, man, you get Goosey Desmond, you know, he knows how to make a hit? Or how does it, how does it happen where you start getting new clients and such big stars? Well, you know, it, it's always... This way, I mean, every dog has a day. You know, around the same time when I was having hits, Diane Warren started having a bunch of hits. And some, and sometimes we would co-write together. So we were sharing hits going up and down the charts, just like, you know, between 86, 87, something like that. I mean, it was very, very exciting. And um, I, I just, um, you know, <clears throat> I... I, I kind of got into like a rivalry with her, but we were best friends too. So it was kind of a wonderful relationship because she was kicking my ass. And so that made me want to fight harder. And she, you know, she made me great too, you know, just simply by existing. And, um, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it was a, a very exciting time. And you know what? There's only so many hours in the day, but, you know, also it was a kind of strange time because I was in a kind of mind cult uh, uh, thing where, where I lived on a farm near Charlotte, in, near Charlottesville, Virginia. That was a Jeffersonian plantation. I was there three days a week, and I and then I would fly to New York and and work four days uh, straight, night and day, and because I didn't have a relationship or anything like that, so I was pretty repressed. And I think all of the uh, the, the passion that I wasn't experiencing in my real life, I was putting into my music. Now, when you write, like I know you came back and you wrote again for Bon Jovi, Bad Medicine, off the New Jersey album, and at the same time you wrote for Joan Jett, and both all big hits. How do you know the pulse? I mean, the bottom line is, it's proven you know what works and what doesn't. You look at your track record. But is there something in your mind that you sit there and you hear music and you go, you know what, I think this is what's happening right now. I think I can take that and put my little spin on it and make it a hit because you're, you're a hit maker. I mean, it's, it's, and there's, there, if someone that writes one hit, it's one thing, but you've been involved with so many hits. Is there something intrinsic in you that you just I, I think actually that way of thinking kind of shuts one down completely. You know, I mean, it's, you have to go into a situation and there's living, breathing souls that you're working with that are, you know, you are, are, you are artists creating. And if you start doing too much, you know, derivative stuff, then you're already two years behind or whatever, maybe not so much now when stuff is made last week and it's out, you know, the next day, you know. Uh, maybe there isn't that much of a wait time, but in the past, there used to be long lead times between, you know, when you wrote a song by the time it got out to the public. So it was hard to say, you know, oh, I'm writing for my, what's popular today. You know, you just, I just happened to be lucky and write with uh, people that were, I sort of got known for writing 
for people that were characters in a way. There were really strong personalities, like Steven Tyler, Joan Jett. Um, you know, these people really had, you know, personas, Cher, Michael Bolton. So I was, it was made it easy because then I, I knew exactly what they could do and what they couldn't do. It was clear. Not, it's not like inventing someone from scratch because they're good looking and they want a TV show. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but, and with no life experience. It's much more, it's much easier when you have material to work from and that's that person's life and their soul and you write a perfect song for them. Um, it just, it just absolutely works. Like, dude looks like a lady. You know, it, when I walked in this very first day, they were writing a song called Cruising for the Ladies with that same backing track. And, you know, I, I took a risk and I said, guys, that sucks. And they looked at me like, what? I said, that just sounds like, you know, kind of some Sunset Strip band, you know, going down Sunset Strip with a top down and a bunch of blonde bimbos, you know, cruising for the ladies. And it's like, well, uh, Stephen was a little bit sheepish. And he said, actually, when, when uh, we came up with that, uh, I was singing, dude looks like a lady. I said, what? Dude looks like a lady. And uh, then Joe said, well, I don't, we don't know what that means. I said, okay, hold on, I know what that means. That's great. That's a hit title. Let's do it. And I coaxed him into it, and Joe was very resistant. He said, I don't want to insult the gay community. I said, oh, no, you wouldn't be insulting the gay community. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was a song that really had a lot of um, open-mindedness and empathy, because the second verse says, never judge a book by its cover, or who you're going to love by your lover. And then later on in the song, he says, my funky lady, I like it, like it, like it, like that. So it's sort of like, the guy goes into a situation, doesn't realize this beautiful blonde is actually a, a dude, but doesn't run away from the situation. You know, and I think that that, I mean, considering when that was, and the fact that every four-year-old in the world knew the lyrics to that song from Mrs. Doubtfire's Broom Dance. <laughs> I think I think it, it was one of those things that was wonderful. Uh, recently, I found out that uh, Caitlyn Jenner was doing her own cover of that song, okay. so I'm dying to hear it. Uh, and uh, it, it's and I think Stephen's working on it with her. It's sort of like a kind of a fun thing. I think it might be even a charity thing that she's doing. And um, you know, she's getting a lot of criticism from some people are saying, that song makes fun of transgender. It's like, what? It's like totally sympathetic. What are you talking about? You know, so, and a gay dude wrote it, so shut up. <laughs> so as you're writing all these songs and you're writing you know, different songs for different artists, eventually you end up writing an, an album with Alice Cooper. How did that come about? And what is it like when you tackle a whole album? Because, you know, it, it's from 89 and, and that's back when, you know, and in my eyes, when albums were albums and we got albums and we got cassettes and we, we were fascinated when you bought an album and you wanted to hear every song and we bought them when there was like at least eight out of ten good songs and you couldn't buy a song here or there. What's it like when you go into a, a studio and did you know in the beginning that you're writing the whole album with him or was it something that it just evolved? Well, one of the things that was happening was I realized that to, you know... Uh, double my profits, I should be producing these records. And But none of the bands I was working with would let me be a producer. They were okay with me being a co-writer, but when you're a producer, you're, you're the man in charge. You've got to dick-slap them into shape. And I don't think they, you know, these very hetero bands like the idea of a gay guy pushing them around, you know, and being, you know, kind of lording over them. So there was a kind of glass ceiling on that. So, you know, they gave me folks like, um, you know, to produce like Joan Jett, you know, and Alice Cooper, and later on, you know, Cher, and then Meatloaf. I mean, these were all kind of very, you know, kind of uh, gender-bending creatures, <laughs> you know, uh, you, could, you could say, um, in the public eye. So, and of course, you know, and later, of course, 
I produced Ricky Martin. So, you know, producing hardcore hetero bands, I only did that a couple of times, you know, uh, because it was, you know, it's like one of those things. It was like a glass ceiling. So with Alice Cooper, my publisher at the time um, was uh, married to Alice's A&R guy uh, over at Epic Records, and um, that's how I got in. And so we met and we wrote, and he explained, you know, uh, something to me that which was wonderful, which is that Alice Cooper is a character, like it's a musical, and, and all the albums are musical event, like theatrical events, and that the character of Alice Cooper is, you know, embodies kind of art, the public's dark side, kind of like the devil, looks very devilish, but always, you know, and always does the the bad thing, like cuts off a doll's head, but then he gets his head cut off. So it's always a moral play. So there's always a consequence for one's bad behavior, because he was a uh, uh, he he is a, you know he's the preacher's son, so he's a very actually spiritual religious person with a very kind of like uh, strong you know Christian ethic, and that's what made his devilish character all the more exciting because it was the forbidden, you know, the dark side. Right. And in in the world of the arts, we need villains just as much as we need heroes and, and damsels in distress and all of that and bad girls and medusas and all these archetypes are constantly, yeah, I think they're hardwired into our system. And, you know, I firmly believe that when a character is, the closest to the pure archetype, that's when the most people can relate to them and they are the most successful. Now, when you're writing, as you said, you know, you've written for all different type of people. I know you wrote for Michael Bolton. What is it like writing for a guy who is also a writer? Is there something where you're afraid you're going to step on each other's feet? Or, I mean, what's that like? Because everyone's, you know, a writer, but he was making before he was coming out with singles, he was writing. What's it like when you collaborate with him, and why would a writer need another writer? Well, because it's not fun to write by yourself. It's so much more fun, like when we wrote, me and Diane Warren uh, banded together to work on Michael's songs, and we co-wrote How Can We Be Lovers If We Can't Be Friends, and I was the producer. And, um, you know, we... I, we spend most of the time just blubberingly laughing, falling on the floor, because they're both jokesters and me too. So you know, that's why you know there's a camaraderie, and also you know there's different kinds of songwriting. Some songs are kind of confessional, you know, very personal, like what Joni Mitchell wrote and Bob Dylan, Laura Nero, um, and so they didn't co-write real well, a collaboration of some sort, but that's, that's like, they're, they're like, their hearts are on their sleeves, they're, they're, they're writing their life story, but when you're making hit records, it takes a village, man, it takes a lot of, of objective, of, of, uh, objectivity, and, um, you know, big ideas, and those big ideas have to go perfectly with the image of the artist. And some people, you know, they can't see themselves, you know, clearly they need help. Like, is an actor supposed to direct themselves on a play? No, they get a director. Right. You know? And that, that's, that's, the, that's the way it is in, in music as well. <clears throat> you know, it's, there's different kinds of things. Like band members co-write with each other. That's the same as, as co-writers. You know, it's the same. You know, and sometimes even bands get, you know, so kind of in a rut or tired of each other or they, you know, had, you know, one stole the other one's wife and, you know, all kinds of problems. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you need a new person in there to make them feel hopeful again about being together. So I've always been a cheerleader and, um, you know, got in there and, you know, got everybody excited again about what they were doing. So that's one of the skills that I developed. To, for my own survival. Now, 
explain to my listeners exactly what a producer does. When you went from singer, uh, from songwriter, co-writer to producer, what what are the what is your job as a producer? Well, you know, after the the material is selected, then one has to go into the studio to record it. And in those days, musicians actually played together. It wasn't all just layered like it is now or programmed. It was like real music making where you heard something somebody was playing and to give you an idea and you would play it. And it would be spontaneous. And then you'd do a few takes and everything would gel and it would sound like music. And so the producer's job is hiring an, an engineer to, to do the, record everything properly and to oversee the budget and to uh, have the work with the production manager in terms of and the management to make sure everyone's coordinated to be there when they need to be there. And also uh, aesthetic judgments as the band is playing. You're saying, hey, man, you know, just lay out at this spot. Don't play in that spot. Or, you know, the drummer, come on, man, like kick the chorus in. Play the drums louder. A straight beat, man. Just go. And uh, kind of kind of be like a, a team leader in that way. A lot of times, I, w- I wouldn't be in the recording booth. I'd be on the floor, headphones on, kind of like looking at the drummer in the face. You know, because you have to have a great drum track, and then you can go back and fix everything else. You know, but, uh, you know, I'd be like, you know, just like me and that drummer, like, you know, facing the lion. And, uh, you know... And I'd wear drummers out. I mean, I just wear them out because I make them play harder than they ever thought possible. And that kind of energy, you can hear it in the songs that I produced at that time. Now, you're producing a lot of these songs and they're all successful. And then Ricky Martin comes along. And it's, you know, America mainstream isn't used to Latino sound because a lot of people just don't listen to it. How do you about writing a song with Ricky Martin? And then when you wrote Living Libby Loca, did you think it would become as big as it did? I mean, you were Grammy nominated for that, I believe. Uh, Yeah, uh, but I was co-writing with Draco Rosa, who was his Latin producer. And um, he had various producers, Casey Porter and all that. They were doing some Latin records. And one of them had taken off called uh, Undo Tres Maria or something like that. Well, that was the hook, or maybe it was just called Maria. And um, I had seen a video of him playing a live date on the streets of Argentina, and they closed down the city. It was like half a million people showed up from every single which way for, for, for him, and it was an aerial view. And I said, oh, my God, you know, this guy's a star. I have to work with him. So, you know, my, my manager, and uh, I actually... Very close friend Richard J. Alexander had uh, seen him on General Hospital and uh, had hired him to be in Le Mis on Broadway, and he, you know, was very, you know, uh, you know, forceful. This is the guy you got to work with. So, um, so you know, at that point, I had left LA because I had tried doing my own record on Electra, and. Um, it was not successful. I toured, and during that period of time, Nirvana came in and swept all my bands away. And then came the era of this kind of alternative rock and these shoegazers that played three chords and sang like little folk songs and stuff. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the, the triumphant, um, you know, kind of singing and the big music that I had helped to, to make in the 80s all of a sudden wasn't cool anymore, like from one day to the next. And so it was, it was, then there was an earthquake, 1994, uh, the Northridge. And um, I was living there with my partner, Curtis, who's now my husband. We've been together 28 years and have uh, 15-year-old twin sons. Um, And um, we said, you know, let's get out of here. So we sold everything and moved to Miami. Miami Beach, and I started rebuilding my career, and I started going out to Latin clubs and listening to Albita and, you know, all these, you know, cool salsa bands and all that, and, um, 
you know, there really hadn't been anything crossing over since Gloria Stefan and John Sakata, and that was like 15 years before. Nothing was breaking through in Latin. So, you know, I, I said, well, I'm going to write Latin songs that are built like Bon Jovi and Kiss and Aerosmith anthems. And, you know, with a Latin flavor of horns and congas and all that, with real sing-alongs and all of that. And it worked. And we first thing I did was the uh, 1999, I'm sorry, I think 98 uh, World Cup theme called uh, The Cup of Life. And that was instantly number one in 23 countries. And that's the song he sang on the Grammys. And, um, you know, that changed the course of popular music. And there would not have been the Latin music explosion without that performance. And so the powers that be at Sony, and even, uh, you know, it was a great moment for Santana, too. And Clyde, everybody kind of jumped on this whole Latin wave. And so they, you know, they put out Mark Anthony, J-Lo, and, you know, every which way, all, all of a sudden, there was a Latin Grammy organization, and that was all spawned from that one performance. And uh, Ricky just, you know, blew the world away. I mean, Mark Anthony sold like four and a half million. Ricky was selling 13, 14 million. And, um, you know, Living La Vida Loca became a household term. And, you know, Living La Vida Loca, you know, only had like three Spanish words. It was all in English. <laughs> and at that time, the record company said, do you think you could translate the song to English? I said, it is in English. <laughs> So when the ads came out, it said, Living La Vida Loca, and then in big letters underneath in parentheses, it said, Living the Crazy Life. Because <laughs> the record company didn't think people would understand that. It's like, they go to pull you, Loco? Yeah. Come on now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I, Loco I, I, is, everybody knows what that I, is. Everybody Stop knows it. it. It's, 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 yeah. I got to ask you, when, you know, in between when you said you did your own album and it and the music's uh, climate changed, was it frustrating to you that your album wasn't hitting it when you are you've made so many hits? Did that get you down at all? Because you're sitting there going, "Wait a second, I know I have the talent. It's um, I have a proven track record." What and what made you decide to record your own album again? Well, it was always like you know I always wanted to be a star. So that, that um, desire or, or motivation is deep inside. And, you know, it exists to this day, you know. And, and I live vicariously through the stars that I've helped, you know. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to have my own show. I'm going to have my own, you know, something. And, and no, I really am. Next year I'm going to do a show of my music. I'm going to have beautiful girls and boys singing. And I'm going to take it all around the world. And, you know, I love singing and I love feeling the audience because I grew up, you know, performing in cabaret. And even if there was like five drunks at the bar that were like applauding, that gave me a very good feeling. So I'm a born performer. But, you know, it's it just like I've been way better, you know, as, as somebody behind the curtain. You know, I... I think that one of the things that I didn't have the confidence that it took to be like a Bon Jovi. He is like the most confident person that ever lived. I mean, he's fantastic. And I didn't have that confidence in myself. And part of it may have been, you know, that um, like when I, when I did my, our second record, Desmond Chandler Rouge, I kind of came out. In, in that record because it talked about my rela my relationship with Maria and um, you know the first song's called The Truth Comes Out but then you know when I went to make my record at Electra I went back in the closet like inexplicably you know it was kind of like I was trying to appear like I was like a stud like Michael Bolton or something and it was it was inauthentic and so I think that I sabotaged myself because I wasn't truthful and I was afraid, you know, and guess what? It wasn't like as accepted as it is now. It took Ricky Martin, you know, 
a hell of a long time to finally come out too. You know, because the, the people at the record company say, hey, don't say that because, you know, females buy, are the ones that buy pop music and if they don't think that you're available to them, you know, then they're not going to do it. And it's like, okay, do people really think that they have a chance with the stars <laughs> they, they like? I mean, is that really the basis for bu buying music? I mean, maybe it is, you know, they have a chance. Like, for the longest time, like, certain stars I worked with couldn't say they were married, you know? It was like, what? You know, no, no, I can only say she's my girlfriend, but they, they were married, like, for forever. And so, I mean, centric stuff. And, um, you know, it, it, I, I think that I suffered from believing in that myself because I wanted to be successful so bad. I didn't want there to be one thing standing my way. Well, guess what? My record really wasn't that good. And I also needed a producer badly. But everyone around me told me, oh, who's a better producer than you? And you know what? I failed because I, I could have had so much better record. I could have chosen so much better songs. And I really should have just turned myself over to a producer like a brand new artist and just learn from them and let them tell me what to do, what to sing, where to stand, how to look, when to smile, you know, and then maybe I would have made it. But, you know, there was a lot of things also, you know, like um, the music I made was never artistic, artsy, like the kind of music that was fitting on Electra. And so, I, you know, I think that Bob Krasnow at that moment thought, well, hey, you know what? I'm going to get into stuff that's more commercial. So maybe I'll find Desmond because maybe he can be the next Michael Bolton. You know, maybe he thought that, you know, but because everything else, everyone else on the label, you know, was so cool. You know, um, I, I can't remember all the people, but Batman was one of them. And I mean, she was even very like outwardly gay too, you know, and I don't know why I was terrified that Bob, would find out I was gay. It was like, you know, it, it was crazy. It was the craziest thing. I think that those thoughts and those things impeded my success as an artist. But the good thing is you still had such success as a, a songwriter and you were uh, elected to the Songwriters Hall of Fame. What what does that feel like? I mean, anything when you're involved with something and it three words in it are Hall of Fame has to be just an amazing feeling and just a tribute to your body of work well you know I was nominated twice and and did not get in and then the third time was the charm and over the course of uh, you know seven years or something it took a while you know uh, for me to get in there Diane had gotten in like 10 years before me and so um, I was like um, you know really you know wanting it and and um i think maybe my people started coming around and realizing yeah look you know look at his body of work in fact the the year that i was inducted i opened the show with desmond child and rouge and a huge band and even latin percussionist on the ground and we we did a medley of eight songs one after the other one more famous than the next and people were like blown away they didn't even know i'd written all those songs and um you know it was kind of like one of those things, then I joined the board of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and now I've been there since 2008. And I, I was also given a committee, um, and it was to start the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame. So I'm the chairman of that, and I co-founded it with um, the president of the, of the organization, Rudy Perez, in Miami. And we're going into our fifth year, and that the show's going to be October 19th. In, uh, at the James L. Knight Center in Miami. And so, I, and, and one of the beautiful things is that one of my motivations was my mom, because she had passed away that year. And um, there was a statue of my mom that a sculptress had done with her playing guitar um, around the time when I was born. And um, we used that sculpture as the kind of trophy uh, sculpture like the Oscar um, we, we had a reproduction made 
um, by Alan McGuire, you know, one of the most famous international sculptors that resides in Nashville. And um, it's called, and the statue is called La Musa, the Muse. And so it, the show is called La Musa Awards. And so it, it's been very satisfying to, you know, stay in the Latin music business. And, and um, you know, this year is going to be spectacular. We're inducting Erica Ender, who's one of the co-writers of Despacito. You know, and it gives me, it puts a smile on my face because I wonder, well, first of all, could there have been a Despacito without Gloria Stefan and, jo- and John Zaccata? Could there have been a Despacito without Ricky Martin? You know, and I, the answer is no, because all of that work and all of that reaching out and those spectacular careers prove that Latin music is, is, is viable and liked by people all over the world. And Despacito is like the first song to go all the way to number one that's a hundred percent in Spanish. And, and you know, there you go. <laughs> it's, it's full circle. Columbia Records. <laughs> uh, I got to ask you, we have to wrap, wrap up in a little bit. How has the music industry changed in your eyes? I know you'd written that, uh, the thing I'd said about Saul was about Spotify. How has it changed? And do you think it's a better climate for new musicians now? Or do you think it was better back, you know, in the old, the, the, the 80s and, and 90s? Well, in those days before there was American Idol, I mean, people really had to come up, you know, from, you know, it, was, it wasn't that easy. I mean, you have to have, like say you were in rock, you had to have bands that kept playing and kept growing star, uh, stars and you kept getting better and better. And, you know, as, you know, Idol, which was the first big show and I worked on it, was fantastic in a way because they would revive catalogs, you know, like the Bee Gees and Broadway and make them, you know, like rockers like Daughtry, like sing, you know, like shit from Mary Poppins and stuff, you know. And, um, you know, I, I think that it was very good because it was more like radio when I grew up. You'd, you'd hear Dionne Warwick and then you'd hear the Rolling Stones and then you'd hear the Beatles and you'd hear Wilson Pickett and then you'd hear the monkeys and then you'd hear, you know, Carol King and then you'd hear, you know, it's like everything was eclectic on the same station. And then later on, they discovered this kind of pinpointed marketing. So there was only rock on this station, only pop on that station, only this on that, you know, started making people dumber because they weren't exposed to other kinds of music. So Idol did that, you know, but at the same time, you know, the downside is that some of these kids weren't ready for fame and hadn't done the work to be in that position. So uh, suddenly they were as famous as could be. And yet, you know, it was hard for them to, to follow through and continue. So that's why they're, they're really, you know, aside from spectacular ones like Kelly Clarkson and Carrie Underwood and Clay Aiken and, you know, um, Jennifer Hudson, um, Diana DeGarma, like very few, you know, have remained popular. Um, you know, and, uh, Daughtry is, is one, of course. Um, but I mean, I don't know. It's hard, you know, and, and then once you're burnt out on one of those shows, it's kind of hard to roll back, you know, and start from scratch again. And, um, you know, it's like you're, you know, then, you go into, you know, some touring show of Greece, whatever, no shame in that. Um, but maybe that's where they would have been anyway. Right. So I think that the old days, you know, and also remember that it was the days of payola. So you could pay, you know, a bunch of program directors in cash, cocaine, and hookers uh, to play your song and, uh, and for a longer period of time. And let it, let the repetition, the repeated listenings stick. And that really made a difference. Now that, you know, they would like play a song, test it out in the Midwest at three in the morning. And if it didn't get any phone calls, it was stiff. That's the kind of uh, research they do. And, um, you know, it, it, that has really hurt careers and really has hurt music. And, um, you know, it, it's it's a very, <laughs> it, it, these are changing times, but, you know, 
people adapt. And uh, as Bob Lesset says, you know, um, you know, it's technology, you know, killed the radio star, you know, it's like, or the rock star. It's like when somebody can make a perfectly great sounding record in the bedroom and not have to live in a van with a bunch of guys for, you know, eight months out of the year. And all of a sudden, that song that they did that cost nothing with some crap video is like getting 45 million views, you know, and downloads. It's like, what? It's a different kind of world. It's a different form of entertainment. It's a different type of composition. It's a new world. But hey, when I was coming up, I didn't want to hear the Charleston. Right. You know? <laughs> And, and the people that loved the Charleston was like, were shocked when rock and roll came in. So everything's going to change. The, the biggest, most significant change that happened was when urban music really took hold. And that was about 20 years ago with, with uh, Jay-Z and Dr. Dre and what, all the things that they did. You know, the artists that they supported. And, you know, that was, that's the biggest thing that's happened. And it's, it's, has staying power and it's like such a strong influence and everywhere you go around the world that's what people are listening to and they're trying to copy it in all these different countries in their own language and it's a huge huge change and guess what that stuff is made in studios you know it's not and then sometimes they'll add some live instruments it's a lot of it's sampled um and and they're very creative and they're, they're also the music, the lyrics are urgent. And they're actually saying stuff that people care about. Where, you know, a lot of rock music and all that was still just talking about broken hearts and stuff. Right. That nobody cared about anymore. We live in a much more savage world. And, you know, people are getting shot. And, you know, stuff is happening. I, I, I think that, you know, you can't stop time. And, you know, with me, it's like I'm still writing. Hey, I had a hit two years ago with Zed called Beautiful Now. That's EDM. So that song actually made it my fifth decade of number one hits. That's awesome. And that felt pretty good. You know, so, um, you know, and I'm still trying. I, I, I'm still writing and still, you know, going to try to figure out a way that I can get back on the chart. And if I can't, you know, I mean, I have other things I'm doing. I'm working on Broadway shows. I have a television series, um, you know, that is moving forward um, called uh, Transcon. It's the Lou Perlman story and the Ponzi scheme that bankrolled the boy band uh, era in Orlando. And, um, you know, hopefully, we're, you know, we'll close the deal on that. And then I'll be, you know, making music for that show because it'll include new songs. And then guess what? I'm a buyer instead of a seller. Right. You know, instead of having my hat in my hand, I'm deciding what songs go into that show. And that's the stage I'm in in my life, you know? Well, that's awesome, man, Desmond. And um, we're time's about up. And I want to thank you for coming on. This was great. You have such a great career, and you're just resilient. And it's funny because a lot of people don't want to be resilient, and, and you've written tons of hits and you're still resilient and you're still making it happen so now do you i saw you on twitter do you tweet a lot no i i don't i don't i'm not sure who's been tweeting my tweet okay. <laughs> maybe maybe i'm getting uh you know whatever hat tweet that tweeted by the white house or something i don't know <laughs> well i want to thank I, you I, I i i gotta check and see what the hell's going on i you know sometimes i'll i'll put up an instagram picture and uh my husband's doing the kind of the, more the facebook stuff you know with the family and stuff like that i you know it's really a, a mistake you know i really got to get professional with it i'm just just it's not part of my metabolism you know to be constantly you know, worried about what I'm going to post and think and keep pushing and hold on to my followers. And, right. you know, that's a lot of stress. It is. And guess what? Every every new star out there has to do it. I know. Every new star. Well, I'm... And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, working on my autobiography that's being co-written with David Ritz, one of the most foremost uh, 
the collaborators of, of music autobiographies. And um, I'm going to be putting my show together. Hopefully I can get somebody to put up the money to do my career documentary. Because that's, a, that's what I'm, you know, that's the point I'm in. I do workshops. I just did one in Hungary uh, because I'm half Hungarian and half Cuban. And um, I, I work for two days with uh, young music makers there. And I'm inviting them to come to Nashville and work with me in my studio in, in uh, October. So, you know, it's like, it's, this is a time when, you know, I always do a class at uh, or kind of a panel or something at the ASCAP Expo, which is a fantastic thing that I recommend that people attend. And so, you know, I'm, I keep myself busy and I love to teach and I love young people and I love, you know, I, I, I want to stay in, in the middle of it all. You will. I want to thank you for coming on, Desmond. This has been great, and you're a fellow Scorpio. So people... Thank you so much, Steve. You're welcome. Google Desmond Child. Listen to his music. And when you hear about his show, you're going to love it, I can tell. So go see him. Uh, follow him on Twitter. You can Google him on Twitter. He may not get back, but he does some stuff there. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalknet. You can find over 625 episodes. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. And Cooper Talk is presented by Walk My Mind. You guys have a great day.